Hello, and welcome to SFF Reverse Shot. I'm Sydney Film Festival director Nishen Mudli. Each episode, we'll look back to the festival's archives to revisit our favorite filmmaker talks, hot topic panels, and thought-provoking Q&As. You'll hear from Australian and international filmmakers, plus actors and expert curators, on how they got their start, their career highlights, and the films that changed their lives. This week, you'll hear Australian actor Ben Mendelsohn in conversation with David Caesar. It was recorded after the screening of Una at Sydney Film Festival in 2017, presented with vivid ideas. Mendelsohn discusses his dark role in the film, his memorable Australian roles, from the year My Voice Broke to Animal Kingdom, and his extraordinary international success. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Ben Mendelsohn. Language warning. This episode contains strong language. take on a role like that, you know, which is such a dark play, such a, I mean, what do you think about when you sort of do, do, a, do a character like that? I hadn't seen the play Blackbird, um, and um, so when I first read it, I, I found a really thrilling read, like it was, um, uh, it was a very intense psychological thriller. But when I went to do it, because in the play there is no young unit, um, in this there is, my main concern was to, was actually just to get comfortable and spend time with uh, Ruby and her family. Because that to me was the only bit which was like, oh. Um, the rest of it didn't, um, you know, like you're only ever doing scenes and you sort of understand the parameters of the scenes, you know it's pretendy and all of that, um, which allows you to sort of really go for it, I think. But in, when it came to um, Ruby, um, who, you know, who was, was 13, I think, um, maybe 14 when we did that, that was the that was the part that that you know I just wanted to go and spend some time with her family and her just to go normal normal we're going to do sort of um, weird subject matter even though it's not anything specific when you see them together but that was my main concern because mm. yeah, I, I do you, do you think about the context of playing a pedophile like in the context of your career or was that <laughs> not not hugely I mean you become aware of when you're doing, like, I, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm aware that it's sort of, you know, that there, there's a sort of a, a through line of sort of dangerous or difficult characters and stuff like that. And I mean, that's prob- that's why it came to me in the first place, is, is because that's a sort of the work um, that's largely been going on in the last couple of years. But I mean, I've mentioned this a few times before. Um, you know, I used to be uh, the sweet, affable, um, you know, couldn't get a girlfriend type of guy. Um, and then, you know, we perfected uh, larrikinism. Um, and then it suddenly went to, you know, murderers and pedophiles and Death Star builders. So, 
change and stuff. But I've never ever confused me with the thing. And I think that's a normal thing that happens. You watch something and you go, oh, like, no, oh, wow, dodgy. But, you know, I mean, you know, I, I've never ever confused myself with, you know, the uh, script. Very good. Um, okay, so um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your career. And I, I sort of was thinking about it last night. I was thinking it's it's almost like model of a of a feature script in a way. And like people talk about three act structure, but really now they talk about they're actually talking about four acts. Uh, they make the second act two parts with a midpoint, which anyway is a lot of bullshit. But and, and the Americans come out and tell us how we're doing writing our scripts wrong, and the government pays them to do that. But that's a whole other story. Um, uh, but we could take half an hour. We, but let's not go there. Um, but I was thinking about it because I think like the first act of your career was this guy who was travelling around with his parents around the world and getting expelled from schools. Well, one, you know, one, <laughs> one, but that'll do. And then coming back and staying with your grandmother and then this ad for actors came along, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. there was a, well, it was a friend of mine actually. It was my best friend from high school before I left and went to America. Yeah, uh, had read an ad in the paper. They were looking for kids, um, and it was ostensibly to do a show called The Henderson Kids, uh, which was for Crawfords. And um, I went along. I did the interview. Uh, you know, it went well. Uh, but the Henderson kids, for whatever reason, got delayed. So I ended up getting other little jobs for Crawfords and then did the Henderson kids. And then, so you did that for a few years. But then, yeah. I think the big turning point into the second act. You're going to be right here. I know, yeah. where, I know where we're going. Yeah, it's a year my voice broke. Yes. Screaming later today in case you were wanting tickets. <laughs> um, and for me, that I saw that film and I remember I'd just gotten out of film school and I saw you in that and I was very impressed with that. And I and then you won an AFI award for that? Yep. And then I had just written a short film and I got some money to do that. And I contacted your agent to see if I could get you to be in it. And they said, yeah, he'll do it. And then I said, oh, I haven't got any money. Would he come up on the train from Melbourne? Oh, I haven't got any money to put him up, so can you find somewhere to stay? And Ben said, yeah, okay. And uh, we made a short film together. And you were still a teenager, I think? Yeah, I would have been. I would have been. I think you were 19. Um, yeah, it was no, 18 or 19, something yeah, like that. 18 or 19. And yeah. I was in my, still in my early 20s. So um, we did that together. But that's kind of then when you, because I think that's kind of the first like larrikin thing that you did. Really? Yes. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. Um, yeah, my voice. Oh, okay. I thought you voice. were. Yeah, I know. Okay, yes. Uh, kind of, kind of. I think the Henderson kids was actually, in fact, if you want to go back to it, the Henderson kids was kind of a blend of a bad guy and a larrikin. So. They must have pegged so me. So it's all a cycle. Yeah, they must have pegged me quickly. Okay. So then you went on to start doing all the um, romantic leads. Yes. Uh, oh, you want me to fill oh, in that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I've never done a romantic comedy, so... Um, yes, you have. Have I? Yes, you have. When? Even in Mullet there's romance. I mean, in Idiot Box. You know, yes, you have. But so. I wouldn't describe Idiot Box as a rom-com. 
No, but it's got rom-com strokes yeah, through it. Yeah, it's got, like, musical elements. It does indeed. It does indeed. You whistle the theme of Skippy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, anyway, so anyway. then I, um, uh, then I did, uh, The Big Steel. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, wow, these conversations. Are they difficult out there for you? Guys? I'll tell you what, it's, um, you've got to, got to work it up here. Um, so I did that for, uh, for Nadia Taz. But funnily enough, she gave me that job because she had seen an episode of GP where I played a, uh, a soccer player who had um, some kind of knee thing going on. Um, so I don't know how that happened, but in any case, at the, and then I kind of became sweet, um, forlorn, overcome kind of um, boy. Yeah. And, and did that again in kind of Spotswood. Yeah. With, um, you know, with, uh, with Sir Anthony Hopkins and, um, and you know, a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of great people. Um, and that's sort of it. Did I do? Oh, that's about it, isn't it? The, the smoochy, oh, no, I think there's a couple more in there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's a little. Um, and then, and then, I would argue, and yes, tell, you can tell me I'm talking out of my ass here. But I would argue that then that next stage of your career was around Idiot Box. Absolutely it was. There's no doubt. Idiot Box was a big... Um, in fact, if I look back and I think back on the career, it's kind of like you get these sort of marker, you know, there are these marker pins. And Idiot Box is a very, very definite marker pin. And Kev is uh, one of my uh, one of my all-time favorite characters um, and uh, and in fact I was gonna play um what's his name what's the we you, you flipped roles on us yeah, yeah. why'd you flip roles on us because oh. <laughs> I was gonna be the sweet boy yeah. wasn't I the poet well it was kind of like a similar dynamic to the big end that short that we did yeah yeah and you were gonna play one role and it different actor was going to play the other one because in in the big end you played the guy who was going on to university right and um the other character was wanted to get a car and go up to queensland yes yeah and so it was kind of like a riff on that a bit and we're looking into that but then it just felt when we're doing we actually were doing like chemistry reads and then a chemistry reads where you have an actor who you know you want to have in the film and then you get other actors in to see what the dynamic is to see yep. how it feels and so we were trying it out and it just didn't i don't know it just kind of wasn't working in in the casting process so then we looked at swapping it over just see what would happen and it just went like that and as soon as we did that well that was a no-brainer from that point on i thought yeah, but Kev was very much, and Kev is in fact the, the, the most quintessential, purest sort of larrikin, oik kind of uh, character, I think, of them all. And I, can't, I really love him for that, and I love him for that. But there are those references in it to Bon Scott and, and Ned Kelly, and, and we're kind of riffing on that idea too, that kind of self-destructive Australian iconic character with him. Yeah. sort of embraced that, I thought. No, I, look, I loved all that about it. And then I remember I found that girl 
Girl Scouts um, zip-up top. Yes. With the patches on it. That was fantastic. Which appealed to me greatly. I, I liked it very much. And, and that ended up becoming what I wore. Yeah. Well, you'd let me wear that a bit. I yeah. wanted to wear that jacket a lot more in the film. <laughs> but the problem was it covered up to get a dog up his shirt. Indeed. Indeed. Which was kind of the point in the way for me. You see how actors can often get in the way of... No, 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 no I mean this quite seriously. <laughs> actors can very, very often get in the way of the clarity that a filmmaker has. Yeah, but I, I made it more subtext instead of text, so that was a good thing. Mm. <laughs> I thought it was good. I don't, think, I don't think people missed on seeing the Get a Dog Up His Shirt. I think they saw it. No, they definitely saw the get a, get a yeah. dog up your t-shirt. Yeah. And, and you barking at the dog and everything else. <laughs> That's right. I had to fire that dog up. So we're going to do this scene, right? And they, they've gotten the dog wrangler. And I mean, in a, in, if you do a film in Australia, you have to have 60 advisors to make sure that the, the dog's okay and that the actor's okay and the grip feels secure. Um, and they got this dog that wouldn't fire up. You know, the whole point is you walk past this massive Rottweiler and he spins out and starts going at you, right? The dog wouldn't do anything, he just kept on walking up the fence. We go back and do it again, and I looked at Dave, he went, What the fuck is going on? And then eventually I had to go up and kick the fence, didn't I? Like, and do all that sort of stuff to get the dog fired up. And we still didn't get a very good performance out <laughs> But you went on to do a bunch of other larrikin sort of roles after that, though, didn't you? Yeah, like what? Well, you were a bit of a larrikin in Cosy, were you? Oh, no, Cosy's very much back in the, you know, wide-eyed boy of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's very much. Mm. That's very much. But, yeah, what else? Mullet? Yeah, yeah, although Mullet's more of a... Yeah, he's more of a, I think of him more as a spiritual larrikin. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I do. I think of him very much as a guy trying very, very hard to um, return and fit in. And I, I never think of, of Eddie as a larrikin, mm. ever. But I did get the, I mean, in any case, that idea that, you know, I was um, the Australian everyman larrikin thing pervaded for a while. Yeah. Until, well, I was going to say okay, good. that, but in the great tradition of this sort of three axis with two forward with, yeah. after the midpoint, um, that what I think was interesting in, in your career was that there's this thing that in sort of all the books I have now, and they call it the dark night of the soul. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of the middle of the second part of the second act. And there was this period in the early thousands when you sort of like, couldn't get a gig. There was no work. Yeah. And conversely, I was pretty happy in that time. <laughs> like, conversely, I was actually quite contented. I lived up the road here. I had a lovely girlfriend. She had a beautiful dog. <laughs> and, um, and I spent about two or three years just walking around, you know, Darlinghurst, Surrey Hills with Tetsui the Sharpe. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, but there was no work. I think, I, yeah, I made nothing for, for about three years. And there was a kind of a general drought. Mm. But then there was also my drought. <laughs> and then for a couple of years, you sort of played these quite 
I thought they were quite dark characters and things like um, uh, Tangle yep. and um, what, was, what was the other one for Love John? Huh? The Lo- Love My Way. Love My Way. Yeah. Well, Love My Way kind of... Okay, so Claudia, this is another big pin in, in that sort of marker post of things. I had... By the time the 2000s came over and everyone was going, why don't you go to Hollywood like everyone else and going to Hollywood? And I sort of realised that, you know, I wasn't really going to get any love until I'd gone on and done some American stuff and then whoopee-doo, you know. Look, trust me. Trust me. I know you fuckers. Do you want to come and do this show? And I was like, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that'd be pretty cool, you know, okay, great. And I came back, and of course it was, um, you know, far, far better than, than you know, I'd, I'd realised at all. And it really, um, it really kicked things off. And so obviously, Love My Way then led to Tangle very, very directly, but also to other things like Australia, stuff like that. I mean, just to think of being out there in something decent. And um, and that was <coughs> that was pretty much um, the start of good work again. Although it did then go nothing again for a while after that. Mm. And then you sort of did a bunch of films, kind of almost literally at the same time. Yeah, there was Australia. There's Prime Mover. There yep. was um, Brownie's film, Beautiful Kate. Beautiful Kate. And Idiot. then there was another film. Yeah. There was Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom. Now, and... Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was a run of... That was a run of jobs. So that went boom, 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 boom. And Animal Kingdom was the last of them. And I turned 40 the day after we finished. Um, And I nearly didn't do Animal Kingdom. Like an idiot. Like an idiot. Um, but, you know, knock the laminex, I think I did. Um, yeah, and so then obviously, and even after Animal Kingdom, right, which obviously worked as a film and it obviously sort of came together as a performance and everything else, and I thought, okay, good. Well, if anything is going to work, this will work. And there was kind of a, there was a, there was a kind of a one-two punch overseas because both Beautiful Kate, where I'm, I'm sort of a better looking version, um, and then Animal Kingdom, where I'm probably a more, um, uh, you know, someone that gets your attention a bit more. Um, they kind of worked together, you know, they went to Toronto and stuff like that. And then I went to the States and went, okay, you uh, representatives, fire up. Because it's not going to, like, this is it. If this doesn't work, then, you know, nothing's going to work. It'll just be David C. And nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened, though. Nothing happened. So I had to sack him. <laughs> uh, off the field, off 
skipper. Uh, and it went quiet. And it was just like, okay, okay. And I'd spent a few years thinking about what I was going to do and stuff if it didn't all work out. And then nothing happened and nothing kept on happening. And then in one of those, you know, kind of classic, seems to be the way that a lot of people actually get their sort of start in America. There was a film that had kind of formed up and um, one of the cast members switched around and dropped out. And um, uh, then I got this call one day from out of the blue from a very breathless Joel Schumacher um, saying, Ben, Ben, are, are, are you going to do my film? And I had heard nothing about it, right? I don't know. And I was like, uh, I think so. I think, oh, yes, Joel, what, what, uh, what's your film? <laughs> what is it? Uh, Dan Wiley once said that, that actors are really like seagulls. Um, you take a bag of chips down and you, you know, and he'd throw them up in the air and he'd go, look, look, there's a couple of weeks in Neighbours. We're all on it. And it's basically true. You get us hungry enough, you put us out of work for, for long enough, oh, we'll suit up. That was called Trespass, which is not uh, one of the, the more well-known films of the canon, um, but um, but it was uh, it was a um, uh, it was a home invasion piece where I played the home invader, um, and uh, it was Nicole Kidman and Nicolas Cage, and it was because Nicole had said, um, you should have a look at that guy, that, um, that I got that job. So, cool. Nick. Yeah. Um, then you went on to do a bunch of films that I thought were really interesting and, and in no particular order. Um, tell me about uh, your film with Andrew Dominic. I thought, I, I really loved that movie. So Andrew Dominic, uh, Andrew Dominic and I have been uh, uh, best friends for a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, we'd been, uh, one of us had been threatening the other with uh, gainful employment for a long time. And he was doing this film in New Orleans. It was a Brad Pitt film. It was called Killing Them Softly. And he, um, you know, he said, oh, you want you to do this role, I want you to do this role, I want you to do this role. Yeah, yeah, beauty, beauty. And then nothing came of it, right? Then there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. Same routine. Um, and they'd had, again, some kind of casting debacle where someone had been cast and then was not cast and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, long story short, I got a very panicked phone call saying, oh, are you going to do my film? <laughs> and uh, I said, of course I'm going to do your film. I'd actually gotten another job by the time that one came around. Suited up, went to New Orleans and, um, and shot Killing Them Softly. Scoot and I, uh, for those of you have, who have seen that film, Scoot is the lead in the film, and you remember, well, you better remember me. You know? um, we were sort of the bottom of the batting order in terms of, um, in terms of the status of the actors, which meant that we had to be there from the time the film started shooting. For those of you that don't know, quick interlude here. 
the, the more fancy pants you get as an actor, the less time you actually have to spend shooting any particular film. How it goes is, if you're, well, if you're Brad on, on a film like Killing Me Softly, you're going to come in, you're going to shoot for two weeks, and then you're gone. And they'll shoot everything. Boom, 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 boom. And if you're Scoot McNary and, or Ben Mendelsohn on the same film, you'll be there for four months. <laughs> so we, so this worked really well for us though, because we were sitting around with a whole lot of nothing to do. We were in the hotel rooms and we just went, why don't we just get a joint together? So we got a place and we lived together and that helped us to get to the point where we really were really giving each other the shits. <laughs> but we also really liked each other. And I think there's one or two scenes where that really pays off. There's a fight we have on the way to robbing the um, card game. And it's one of these things, you get stiffies about this stuff if you actually work in it. You don't generally maybe notice it if you don't, but there's, there's, um, we're fighting so badly and my fight, I am so angry with him and he is so pissed off with me. Uh, anyway, so we had to work for months to get that uh, one second of film, but I was very glad of it. Good. Another film that really made a big impression uh, on me was a film called Startup. How did that come about? Startup came through, um, that came through the agency, and I think um, David McKenzie, who, uh, who was the director, had, um, had, had probably seen, obviously had seen Animal Kingdom and stuff like that. And this is a British prison movie. Um, and that, that's the one that, for me, was the riskiest of all of the jobs that I've taken on, that was the one that I worried about the most. And that is because growing up in Australia and being an Australian actor, the amount of furor that would have been unleashed amongst the fellow actors if some um, you know, English guy had been brought in to play an Australian, that would have been a huge deal. So I went there like, and I didn't know whether, you know, I didn't know whether I could pull it off, etc., etc. But I figured um, it was worth a roll of the dice. And I'd heard someone once say that if you think you can do something but you're not sure, you should try. Like if you if you really don't think you can do it, okay, fine. But if you think you might be able to do it, go for it, you idiot. No. <laughs> So I did, and um, uh, uh, that that film ended up um, way surpassing my expectations of what it was. And really, um, particularly in England, that film was um, that film was very successful. So yeah, I'm very happy. I think it was a really successful film. Um, and not long after, was it not long after that you did uh, uh, Mississippi Grind? I can't remember whether it was before or after. Like, like some of the some of the order of these things. But uh, Mississippi Grind was the first time I got to do a lead in an American film, and that was uh, that was huge too. That was, um, and if if Ryan Reynolds hadn't have come on board, uh, that that film wouldn't have got made. And I'm very proud of that film too. Absolutely proud mm -hmm. of that film. And how did that dynamic work with you two guys on that? Because that was a really great. He's. So easy to be around. Yeah. Yeah. You want to know my great analogy? 
that I heard once from a Qantas. I can tell you. I got bumped up to first class, right? I, there was set up because not because I'm excellent, but because I had a frequent flyer card and there was a plane overbooked and blah blah blah. And, and I was talking. I said, "Oh, it must be you know you work up here. It must be a bit you know. It must be, I mean, you know." And she went, what? What do you mean? I said, you know, the, the people up in first class, they must get a bit like, Arr. And she said, no, what are you kidding? She said, look, here's how it works. In economy, great. You don't have to worry about a thing. In first class, they're fine. Business class, that's where you got to watch out. Because in business class, they all think they're supposed to be up the front. Um, how embarrassing. My dad is FaceTiming me. I'm tempted. of things, you know, like the, the, the counterintuitive thing about people that uh, do really, really well at what they do is they don't try and act scary or weird. It's sort of the people that, um, you know, in some way or another don't quite feel like they're where they're supposed to be, that, that, that hit you with a lot of attitude or are scary in some way. Um, and Ryan Reynolds is not that person. Ryan Reynolds is... You know, a man at the top of his game. Uh, he is funny. He's sweet. Uh, he's a very good-looking, uh, you know, solid movie star. He, and if he hadn't come on board, that film wouldn't have got made. So it was very easy. Um, you know, it was very easy <coughs> to buddy up. Well, worked well, well on screen, I thought. Um, one thing that I saw uh, uh, of you was that the you know, the G'day Australia Awards or whatever they were in Australia. Yeah. Very recently. Um, and G'day USA. G'day USA. Um, the, and I don't know how many people in the room have seen that, but I, I just thought it was a really interesting what you had to say about Buzz Aldrin and about walking on the moon. <laughs> so, and there was just... I pulled that one out of, you know, like that, that was a bit of extemporising. Well, that was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool what you had to say about that, about the idea of what it means to be, for an Australian, going over to a culture like the Hollywood culture. Do you want me to riff on that? I do want you to riff on that. Okay. Because it's your riff. Yeah, no, basically what I said was, what I said was basically this, that the reason that I... Australians sort of can tend to do well, you know, if they go over and they're actors or they come from our industry and they go overseas. Oh, that wasn't me. Um, um, is, there's two parts to it. The first is that if you grow up, the Sports Illustrated did this thing asking why so many of the great foot, the great quarterbacks come from small towns. And the conclusion that they drew was that when you grow up in a small town and you are, you know, you're the shit, um, you grow up and you take that attitude with you. 
And so to hit the top in, in Australia can happen fairly quickly. You know, you do a couple of jobs in, the row, in a row and you are, you're, the, you're the man. And I said it in, in the late 80s, I was, you know, for a moment there in about 1989, I was the shit. <laughs> and then I said the second reason we do well when we come over is because we think of ourselves, we're easy going and we're friendly and it's all bullshit. We are ferocious snobs and I mean this and it's got really good, it's got really, really good, um, uh, you know, it's got really good payoffs, you know. It means that we're very interested in quality and in the integrity of things. It means we do make a better cup of coffee than they do, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But when you leave the social gravity of Australia, which is a lot of, you know, checks and balances, are you all right? Oh, mate, all of that. And you go to someone when people don't really care. They just say, oh, yeah, hi, hi. You All of a sudden, you feel like you can just jump, you know? So that was my analogy about man on the moon and Buzz Aldrin happened to be sitting there and no one had said Buzz Aldrin's in the room and I was sitting next to Joe Hockey who'd uh, experienced something of uh, the Australian gravity uh, and he said you've got to say something about Buzz Aldrin you know because he's the, he's the greatest explorer here la, la. so I did and then I you know stitched that in. Did Buzz Aldrin actually walk on the moon though? It doesn't matter. <laughs> but if the analogy's about being weightless, then I don't know. Well, I think, I, here's the thing. I think if Buzz Aldrin didn't walk on the moon, he should And he did. He did walk on the moon, because there was a third man, oh, and he was the one in the capsule. Just no, I had to remember, because, I mean, that so was... Buzz Aldrin's I wasn't expecting class. to get quite so... You know, I wasn't expecting that kind of grilling from him. <laughs> That's, yes. No, that's right. I just saw Buzz Aldrin's business class, and the guy in the space shuttle thing was working. It was that. Uh, I'm not sure that analogy holds up very strongly when you get to walking on the moon. No. I mean, it's giant steps. Yeah. Well, you tell. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cool. Um, so, in terms of that process of like just going essentially, and, and you have pretty much gone from film to film to film, what happens when you get to the point where someone says to you, do you want to be in a Star Wars movie? I mean, you say yes. <laughs> I mean, like, did, did that just all happen in a traditional way? Or did, was that a situation when the director called you up and said, Ben, are you going to be my movie or what? You said, oh, what movie is it? Or, I mean, is that it was pretty much that. Yeah, no, I, mean, I got summoned to this meeting and it was at the top of one of those Beverly Hills, um, you know, motel things with a pool up the top and whatnot. And I knew that he was doing Star Wars. I mean, I'd been told. Um, and, uh, you know, I went up there and, and I, I, Scoot McNary, the guy from Killing Them Softly that I talked about before, had made a film with this guy before called Monsters, a lovely little film. So I was familiar with Gareth and, um, and he had seen uh, Animal Kingdom and he'd seen Startup. So he then um, said, uh, look, I'm going to make a Star Wars movie and, you know, are you going to do my movie? <laughs> so, and that was that. 
No. Because no. <laughs> then I had to wait for... Well, I didn't know. I, I sort of thought that was that. But then you, you, I had to wait a long time and there was no talking to anyone. Uh, and there was no, you know, and then I, there were months and months and months went by. And then finally, you know, we got into the, you know, the nitty gritty, like, you know, how much? <laughs> All that sort of stuff. I heard someone talking about the first time you're on set with a certain character dressed in black. <laughs> and I just heard a story about what you said to the director. He says it much better than I'm going to say. Okay. But basically, um, when we had to do the scene with Darth, um, I was quite quiet and I was quite shut down. And, um, and I think Gareth thought I was very angry. <laughs> um, and I think he was looking over going, oh, what's going on, what's going on? And I kept sort of pacing and looking down the floor and looking away and just trying to get my own sort of space. Because you do that on set a lot. You've got to go do all this really intense stuff. There's people around twiddling knobs and whatnot. Um, and you sort of got to find your own little sort of way to, you know. So I was doing all that. And then I, I went up to him and I went, Gareth, Gareth, come here, come here, mate, come here, come here. And I took him over into the corner and I said, mate, that's fucking Darth Vader. <laughs> story <laughs> Yeah, Darth Vader. I said it the other day, but, but it's worth saying, if you knew you were going to do that, you know, if you knew like when you were six and seven and people tease you and you can't kiss the girl and all that sort of stuff, you do just wish that you could turn around and go, hey, don't worry about it, but one day you'll be in Star Wars. <laughs> signing someone the way in. Yes, but that's not my own line. <laughs> um, so, I, I didn't, I was surprised when the characters all died at the end. Are they really dead? <laughs> um, look, I mean, again, I, uh, I couldn't possibly comment one way or the other, but there's a friend of mine who, who I asked his opinion of it, and he seemed to think that, yeah, when the Death Star attacks a planet, that's pretty final. <laughs> okay. Well, stranger things have happened. Uh, look, you know, stranger than fiction, indeed. Um, but to the best of my friend's understanding, uh, yes, they're all dead. <laughs> So, I, I'm imagining you've got about four or five films in the can since then, because you seem to do about that many a year now. You know, you've looked this up, haven't you? You know what I've got in the can. Yeah, but the point, people are here to see you, Ben. Roger that. Um, so, so, just tell me about some of the films that you've done recently that we can get excited about. Okay, the first of all is um, my, uh, my, my dear wife and I uh, made a film together
together, which is a uh, romantic kind of comedy about a, a husband and a wife in the midst of a divorce that make a film uh, about two sisters and uh, two guys in LA. That's called Untogether, and that'll be coming to your screens at some time in the uh, medium future. There is a Robin Hood origin story called Hood, uh, in which I play La Sheriff de la Nottingham. I, in fact, have this pinky ring on here. That is the sheriff's pinky. Well, it's one I had made. But that's his pinky ring. That's a big kind of action-adventure uh, Robin Hood story. Origin story, might I add. Um, then I did a, a lead um, for uh, a woman called Nicole Holofsner, who makes these beautiful little films. Um, and that is called The Land of Steady Habits, and that will be on, that'll, that'll go to Netflix. Uh, again, sometime in the medium future. And the one that you're waiting to hear about, which I've left till last, there's a new, uh, there's an exciting young director called Steven Spielberg, who uh, is making a film called Ready Player One, which is gonna be a very um, beautiful, big, excellent, munching popcorn watching goodies and baddies go at it in, um, in the VR world, in the virtual reality world, with a lot of Spielberg references going on within that world, and that, uh, that should be about a year away. No, so that is, I think that's it, isn't it? That's it, isn't it? Yes, that's it. Can I ask a question just as a, um, you know, like a fanboy? about working with someone like Steven Spielberg? Of course you what, can. What, what, what is his process like on set working with someone, with an actor? I mean, how, how do you say block out a scene? What's, what, what actually happens? Okay, so you go there and, um, and uh, the gov, he's known as the gov. When you work in England, everyone calls him the gov, as in the, the, the governor. Um, so you go down and, and you, uh, you see him and he has an idea of how he wants to move the scene and this and that, but here's what, here's what's excellent. You'll start doing the scene, right? You'll be going, you'll be like, Ben, I want you to walk from here and then you're going to come over here to a little line and kind of move on that line like that. And you'll go and you'll do it and you'll start doing, you'll go, I do, and then he'll go, oh, oh, I've got an idea, I've got an idea. And he will start. This is what is excellent about him. He will start to think, oh, no, 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 I know what we're going to do. And he'll change it. And it'll change. And it'll, you'll sort of watch this thing grow and the camera moves and all of that. And his, his crew, his lighting and his camera crew, are, well, they're, they're certainly arguably the best in the world. And they are so fast and they will form up and you will do these incredible moving camera shots that you've really got to be on your, your game for because the camera moves and the positions and the head positions and the intonations are so specific. He's, he's got a lot more in common with the very old-fashioned filmmakers like your, well, Billy Wilder, uh, Howard Hawks, those kind of people than he does with, you know, anyone contemporary. The difference being that his camera 
an edit is so much more, there's so much more movement and energy in it than, than you could have achieved in those days. But the sensibilities are very much of that era for my reading of it, you know. But when, when you're working with him, is he giving you much in the way of sort of character stuff or motivational stuff? Is he talking about action, is, or is he much more about the actual mechanics? No, he will get in. No, he will. He will do like whatever it is that sort of needs addressing. He will get in there and he will he will mix it up. So he's able to talk about character and stuff like that all day long. But when you get something really good, you know, if you do something and he loves it, man, it's that's a good audience. I mean, he is. You know, he will scream and he will jump out of his seat and go, that's it, that's a big movie moment. <laughs> and I mean, when he does that, it's just like, okay, what do you want me to do next? <laughs> you know, what do you want me to do now? I'm ready. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think it's that level of enthusiasm and the genuine love and the connect that you feel with, with what you're doing and his response to it. Uh, and the degree that it changes. That's why, you know, he's, um, that's, yeah, he's, he's extraordinary. Mm. I, I, I often wonder, I mean, like, as a director, I often wonder about the processes of different directors because I, you don't get to see them. Yeah. Actually. And it always intrigues me that how, because I would have imagined that Spielberg would have this incredibly elaborate storyboard and a, like planned to the nth degree, but the fact that he sort of seems to react on the day is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, well, it certainly, look, I wasn't expecting that either. I thought the degree of technicality in, in the moves and the camera moves and stuff like that would necessitate that, but they're an incredibly fluid. I mean, Mitch, his operator, is... You know, he's a, the camera operator. Um, he's, he's an extraordinarily, you know, I mean, he's he's awesome. They're they're incredibly fast. They are incredibly fast at, at re reorganising things and going. Mm. Yeah. So you're having this sort of incredibly purple patch at the moment with your career, you know, and uh, a lot of people, including myself, would say it's been a long time coming. Do you have like ambitions behind the camera at all? Yeah. Uh, ish. They're more like pipe dreams. You know what I mean? I mean, mm. I, that, there might be something I, I I do, but look, I really I love acting. It's it's um it, it's a tough day's work. Like if if it's really going and it's um uh, it is a tough and a long day's work and it is a difficult thing to sustain, you know, for many months at a time. But I um I am really uh, it's the happiest place on earth for me. Is mm. is a well working set mm. where it's all sort of going on. That's that's. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess very lucky in that way to, to really love what I do. Mm. So no, I don't have any any plans. Also, I'd, I'd just be worried that I'd suck at it, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas I feel like, okay, I roughly know, you know, what I can do acting-wise. I feel like, okay, well, you know, <clears throat> yeah. I don't know what I'd do directing-wise or producing-wise or writing-wise or mm. any of those other things. 
But has been a time that being an actor has taken a toll on you personally, like in terms of like, I don't know, or has it just been more that, that sort of the that sort of Australian thing of not knowing when the next job is, not knowing whether you've got a future in the industry. I mean, that's kind of a thing that I know we've had, we've talked about in the past. Yeah, yeah, we, we have. We have talked about that. Look, I think you don't... The, the, you, there's no job security, right? And that those, all of those concepts um, really just don't apply in... Um, in the performing arts, they they just um, they they're not that. So it um, look it, it's much harder work than people realise, or it's much much easier than than people realise at other times. Like there are certain things which are nothing; they're a piece of piss. But there are sort of there are things about it which require a lot of energy, and they require you to be able to you know respond again and again. It's just the things that are hardest about the acting are the super basic things: eating, getting enough food, because it's hard to eat. Once you eat at work, you sort of slow down a bit, and you're like, you know, you get your after lunch, and you're like, oh, I can go and have a nap now. <laughs> no, <laughs> cry. <laughs> just eating and sleeping and once they sort of start to go out of whack you can get pretty pretty ragged you know but I, I think it's given me an enormous I, I, I think you know I've drawn more of the bank account from it than it has drawn from me you know I think I've gotten um, I've gotten an enormous amount from doing what I do people uh, are pretty good to me on the whole um, and uh, it's all going swimmingly right now. Mm. And so it should. I, I remember there was a time when we were, you and I were in New Zealand about 15 years ago. Indeed. Yeah, just before Mullet. I remember that time a lot. <laughs> yeah, I thought it, was, it was a really interesting time and we were in prep for Mullet and Mullet was up. And I remember I had a conversation with you about my reservations about the value of making movies in the world as a social good. and you had a really interesting perspective on that, as far as I was concerned. You were talking about it actually having this kind of infinite good, and you were talking about it in this incredibly positive way about how important storytelling was as a social good. Yeah. And, and uh, it was, and I have to say, from my point of view, that, that I found that incredibly reinvigorating, you know, like, and we were fishing for trout in that river in Queenstown, and Ben cooked it, and it was absolutely, well, he caught the only trout, that and uh, he cooked it, and for me, it was fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I remember back to that as being kind of already, you know, like, that was kind of, because I was unsure about the point of it. Yeah. You know, and it was kind of quite invigorating to me to have your take on it. Oh, okay. Because really, you had a lot more experience in the, in the, in the industry. Well, I, I had a different perspective. You know, yeah. I wasn't someone that was having to come up with ideas and, and, you know, write and be responsible for the whole. I could more or less go on and shimmy my shimmy and hope for the best. Um, but I do believe that about, I think... And I, I also got told that very young. It's very easy to sort of go, oh, yeah, what does it matter? You know, like, what are we doing here? We're not, you know, and it's a saying that comes up a lot when you're making films, you know. We're not curing cancer, you know, and this isn't rocket science. And that's all absolutely true. But 
when you think about it, for as long as we've been, you know, any type of a society or gathering of, of people, stories and, and storytelling ha is an uh, incredibly important part of that. And just to bring it back to our thing here in Australia and the never-ending kind of angst and debate about, you know, the state of the industry and should there be an industry and this and that and the other, I think that the benefits for Australia are much, it can't really be measured in, in strict dollar terms. Um, the ability to be able to culturally export uh, in the world is enormous. I mean, from as basic as tourism stuff to the idea of um, us in the world. And the idea of us in the world is still a pretty simple idea. I mean, um, you know, look, Crocodile Dundee is the most successful independent movie of all time and it, it had an enormous cultural transmission but that is for a lot of people is still, you know, that's when they think of us, they think of Croc Dundee, you know. Um, so I think, uh, I just think that storytelling is incredibly important and I think we do have a unique voice. Yeah, I, look, I agree, uh, um, but I, I think as well that one of the things that's really great is is having someone, you know, I think that you you keep a lot of those, for me, the ideas of Australianness, even in a lot of those roles you've done overseas, and I, I always look forward to seeing a new film that you're in, because I really enjoy seeing that quality, you know. Yeah. And I think it's good that it's kind of embraced and it's continued, you know, in your international work. Yeah, well, I think it's an integral part of, you know... Who you are. The, yeah, who I am, the way I sort of, you know, carry myself and do, you know, do my do. Mm. Um, that that is there, that is a part of me, and I, I'm proud of it. Mm. So when are we going to see you back here doing some more work, Ben? When you give me another job. <laughs> It'll be a couple of years, but I'll be, don't you worry, you'll be sick of me yet. <laughs> um, okay, um, well, we're... Bloodline. 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 Okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, shall I just take the mic? I, I think you should. Okay. You're so, in it. so Bloodline, um, Bloodline came about um, because there are two brothers and one best friend. That's who make that show. Um, and they were drawing and they were talking about their own experience with um, this guy who was a black sheep of their family. Now they had seen something of mine, I'm not exactly sure which one. Um, I think um, it, it was probably Animal Kingdom and Killing Them Softly. So they'd seen those two. And they got a sense that, um, uh, the, that they wanted me to play Danny. Uh, and I think in large part that's because if you think about the animal, the character in Animal Kingdom, Pope is extremely dangerous. But you can also feel the sadness in him and you can also feel the sort of, you know, there's more than just someone going, oh, I'm going to get yeah. Um, so they came to me with, with, uh, with the idea and they had no one cast at that time and it was going to be something that was going to be on Netflix. I knew he was going to be you know, in the first season, so it was probably going to be one year. And I just went, 
yeah, I'll, uh, you know, they came and they said, are you going to do our series? And I said, yeah. And then, uh, you know, to my uh, enormous um, delight, um, I found out that Sissy Spacek was going to be my mum and that Sam Shepard was going to be my dad and I was going to have brothers and sisters that were Linda Cardellini, Norbert Leo Butts and the great Kyle Chandler. And um, we went and we shot that, um, and uh, yeah, what a job. Um, so the the effect of that um, one, look, the Spielberg film definitely came off the back of Bloodline. He had seen Bloodline, and um, uh, he had seen before at Animal Kingdom, and he'd also seen Place Beyond the Pines. And so that was for him, That's but it was very much bloodline that um that you know he was uh in love with um it, it's 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 hard to you know it, you can't you can't overstate what that um what that series did in order for uh, you know putting me you know out there and um just what an awesome and great show it was to to be a part of you know and and in the heart of Okay, great. Well, we have to wrap it up now, so I'd just like to thank Ben for doing this. Thank you for listening to Reverse Shot. For more news about this week's guest, plus where to watch their films, visit sff.org.au. And tune in next time for another special presentation from Sydney Film Festival's archives.